Repentance is a huge theme in chapter 7 of the book of 1 Samuel. The reason why is because God's people had sinned. They had abandoned God and gotten themselves into a massive mess. 1 Samuel 2, 3, and 4 describe this sin. It speaks of how Israel's leaders wanted glory over God. And uh, you see their waywardness as they set aside God's word. The very leaders themselves were preying on God's people, taking their resources, even using their bodies for sexual immorality. Uh, and it's not only leaders that were wayward. We also see that the people are wayward, that they too had abandoned God and they had followed after idols uh, and abandoned their one true love here. Their sin, once again, leaves them in a massive mess. The Philistines invaded their land. That is the land that God had promised them. And so uh, their worship practices were messed up because the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant uh, which once again was the central, the most central piece of furniture that God himself had instructed his people to build and use in their worship of him. And if you're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was this golden chest that really pointed God's people to God's own rulership. Right? He is Lord over all. It pointed to God's revelation in the chest where the Ten Commandments and God had promised to speak from uh, the most holy place there in, in Israel's worship space. <clears throat> and also pointed to God's reconciliation because the priest was supposed to go towards the chest, sprinkle it with blood, and God would forgive the people by faith. Uh, but we know here that because of their sin, the ark is captured and um, it is removed from Israel. And it symbolized the spiritual state of the era. God's glory was gone. God's glory was gone from the people's hearts, gone from the people. But as chapters five and six, which we looked at last week, even though Israel sinned against God, we saw this, even though Israel sinned against God, God would never abandon his people. He would never abandon his promises and his plans. So what God does, even despite his people's sins, is he himself goes and displays his glory among the nations. The people were supposed to do it, right? That's why he gathered the people together. We know that from the book of Exodus. They were supposed to display his glory. But here, many years after, hundreds of years after the Exodus, uh, you know, his people aren't doing that. And so God himself redeems his own character. And by the beginning of chapter 7, God's ark is back in Israel. Praise God. The people can now worship the Lord according to his design. And then for the rest of the chapter, what we see today is that God brings the people's hearts back to him. So the ark goes back, right, to his people. Now God is going to bring his, the people's hearts back to him. And this brings us to the first mark of true repentance. The first mark of true repentance, turning away from sin and to God. If you're taking notes, that's point number one, turning away from sin and to God. And look there at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Let me turn there. And we see this in, in 3 and 4 here. Look there. And Samuel, he is, he's the main leader of Israel this time, the, the prophet, the main priest. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals, and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. As our passage opens up here today, it's so clear that it's a call. 
If you look in 7-2, you see that, that when the ark is brought back to Israel, 20 years passes. And it says there, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So, so they're lamenting, right? Their sorrow is a good indicator of where things are going. Praise God, because they dug themselves into this mess. And then here, they're, they're lamenting sets up Samuel's call to repentance. It's a clear call there. As I just mentioned, the people were wayward and Saul's, uh, Samuel's call reveals just this, right? The people had abandoned their one true husband. Keep in mind, that's how God himself speaks of his relationship with his people as a, a very much like a husband and a wife, a husband taking and wooing this wife to himself. But it also speaks of how the wife wanders away. Now, that's us. We wander away. Ezekiel chapter 16 speaks of this whoredom where we are whoring after other gods and things like that. It's, it's, it's quite uh, confrontational there. The people knew that God was, is Lord over all things, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God displays his lordship in the Exodus as he you know, commands his creation to do whatever he pleases. And he sends the waters back upon Pharaoh and God gets the glory there. We saw that last week in this battle of so-called divinities as Pharaoh himself was considered to be divine. And here the one true Lord comes and displays his glory among his people. The people knew that there was none besides God. He alone is the one show here. But, you know, as we read what the people are doing, they're giving themselves to idolatry. You know, we can assume that the allure of the nation's gods were just too much to resist. They had a case of FOMO, fear of missing out. So just imagine, right, they're in the land as they interact with the people of the land, that is the Canaanites, that is the Philistines. You know, you can imagine, right, they start wondering, well, gosh, you know, why don't I have this God? Why don't I have that God? The Canaanites, right, they had the storm God, that's Baal. Uh, They also had the goddess of fertility, that is Ashtaroth. And these gods were representative of the gods of the land which the Israelites had adopted for themselves. They had assigned Baal and Ashtaroth God status, God status. So naturally, all of their honor that was to go to the one true Lord uh, began to wane. Their love for the Lord had decreased. Their the, the love for the Lord that had adopted them and brought them, made them into a nation, entered into a covenant, like a marriage covenant with his people. They all of a sudden start adopting other gods now let's not miss the offense here especially if you're visiting with us today maybe you're wondering like what's the big deal you're exploring christianity you might think hey what's the big deal of having yet another god right they already have one over there so imagine like on the mantle they got one over there uh he's the god of the storms and then they add another god over here let's say the god of fertility and that's uh, set up alongside uh God, that is Yahweh, the Lord, the sovereign one over all, right? We kind of understand the instinct. What's the big deal? You add another God. But adding another God is, in fact, a big deal because to set up a so-called God beside the only God then strips God of all the honor that he alone deserves. If God was not the only God, so if God was not the only God and he, in fact, was not sovereign and not all-powerful, not the definition of good, righteous, loving, etc., if he did not have it covered, then maybe you can imagine him sitting from the perch on the mantle, looking over to these other gods and thinking, hey, you know, how's it going? I'm glad you got the storms covered because they're out of my domain. I'm glad you got the whole fertility thing done because, hey, you know, that, that's just not me. 
Glad we are in this together. If God did not have it covered, then going polytheistic would be a wise thing to do. But friends, God does have it covered according to the word of God. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heaven, heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He's absolutely sovereign. He's going to do what he desires. And you, you think not only is he sovereign, but, but everything else that comes with his sovereignty. So you have knowledge, you have wisdom. And Isaiah 46, 10 says, I make known the end from the beginning. Speaking of just how comprehensive his sovereignty is, his knowledge is, his wisdom is, he alone is the one. How does this apply today? You know, we might not have assigned certain physical gods over areas of our life like fertility, but we assign functional gods over them, don't we? We say, hey, you know what? I want financial success, so I'm going to worship my career. And so we break up our own houses of our lives, so to speak, into various rooms. And we put like career over that room of financial success. And that's the God of career. We say, you know, I love pleasure. And then we kind of look around and say, hey, you know what? We you don't know, flipping through Instagram and looking at all the other ways in which other people uh, get to enjoy this pleasure. And we say, you know what? I'm going to manage pleasure myself. And so in the pleasure room, we set ourselves up over uh, that room and we play God. We might even say, you know what? I got a family. I think I need family value. So I'm just going to use the church. And so in the room of family values, we even use the name of Jesus to be that God over that particular thing. And soon enough, every room in your life is overseen by some functional God that we bow down to. Even, friends, even something like fertility. Maybe we assign the God of medical care over that area. But friends, there are no partitions in God's reign over his universe even though we so desire there there to be, he rules over all. And so God, therefore, the Lord is the Lord over every single aspect of your life. So Christian, do you partition God's reign over your own life? Maybe you lay awake at night, flipping through Instagram and Snapchat, and you have FOMO, fear of missing out. You've adopted the functional gods of this world. Can you imagine the offense of going into the pleasure room, the fun room, the money room, the entertainment room and saying, you know what? Sorry, God, I'm just going to have to let you go. You've been reassigned. This is what the Israelites did. They didn't want God to rule their relationships, right? They're preying on other people. They didn't want God to, to rule their customs. They're redefining the worship of God. And they didn't want God to rule over their sexual conduct. With, and you see them using other people's body for their own glory. I mean, just imagine the fence. It was the people who sinned against God, who had ruined their relationship with him in sin, had ruined their relationships with one another in their sin and ruined their relationship even to the ground. You see that in Adam and Eve. God curses even the ground and makes that difficult. But God in his grace and mercy draws near to help them and they are the ones who say in persistent sin sorry lord you've been reassigned (laughs) this is the essence of sin the desire and the thought and the action to actually reassign god and cut out his lordship from him that's the essence of sin and then we use that assumed authority then to then establish our own reign 
We redraw the boundaries of what sin is and we redraw the definitions of what is good and what is bad. And so we we therefore are autonomous beings and we say, basically, you know, get lost. I don't really care what you say. We partition God's universe. That's, that's what's so bizarre about the Israelite sin and our sin. I mean, you just think about the authority structures in the world, right? Do we do this with our own parents when we are young? Do we have that authority? Say, sorry, mom and dad. I appreciate you and your life as you take me to school. But, you know, when it comes to eating candy, I am God. You think about, uh, let's say, you know, your work situation. I mean, just try and do that with your bosses. He gives you an assignment. You say, sorry, guys, you've been reassigned. It is you who are going to be reassigned if you take that attitude. So it's so bizarre. We don't do that with our parents. We don't do that with our bosses. But yet we think it's okay to do this with God. The Israelites had worshipped other gods. They had adopted their ways of the people. They had abandoned their God. Even though God had promised Abraham the land of milk and honey, that he would bless the land with fertility, yet they go to the goddess of fertility. They abandon God. They redraw God's land, so to speak. And Samuel calls them to put them away, put away the gods. It's important to note here, when we're thinking about true repentance, right, Uh, in terms of turning away from sin, it requires action. It requires action. It's not just lip service here, but action. It's the genuine test of faith, isn't it? It is whether or not one actually is going to live out their faith and turn away from the things that they were trusting in and relying on and then putting them away. It's action that's based in faith, a belief, a trust that God is who he says he is. This is this is personal here. I think there's one reason why we are so eager to redraw uh, God or reassign God is because we forget that God is actually a, a personal being. And so putting things away, the action as action is based in faith. Faith is all about who is this God? Is he who he says he is? And this is why Samuel says not only to turn away from idols, put them away, but not only that, but direct their hearts to God. You see that there in those verses? Direct their hearts to God and serve him only. This is the whole being here, giving themselves to not only putting away, but then turning to God. It's pretty obvious to say that true repentance uh, not only turns away from sin, but toward God because he alone is the Lord. We've seen this before in Exodus 20 verses 2 to 4. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not because there are other legit ones. It's because he alone is God. He is the Lord, Yahweh, which means I am. There is none besides me. It's just him. He says there, you shall not make idols and bow down to them. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, uh, it, it's really important to notice, note that Christianity, true Christian faith, is evidenced not only by the turning away from sin, but a turning to Christ in faith. This is God's definition of repentance. It is, it is to turn around, it is to make a U-turn, it is to turn away from the functional gods and to Christ himself. It's faith in Christ. You know, there's a whole, there are those who may turn away from sin, but who do not turn to Christ. You guys probably know this in your own lives. There are folks who we all, at some point in time, you know, we struggle to turn away from sin, but we don't turn to Jesus. We turn to other things. Friends, if that's a mark of your life, 
you may not be a Christian. Because once again, repentance is turning away from sin and to God himself. So it is good to know that just because someone says they are a Christian does not mean they are truly a Christian. Or just because someone turns away from their former life of sin, that means that they are actually cleansed of their sin. Right? People turn away from their old life for a whole lot of reasons. For example, let's say you don't like the effects of sin. You give yourself to sin. Your, your lives are ravaged by sin. And let's say you want genuine change. Like you genuinely don't want all this junk that comes along with the effects of sin. Right? And so you turn away from it. That's a legit turning. But if that's all you have, it's just a system. Whatever you turn to is just a system to, to use to control your urges like morality. That's not turning to Jesus. It's just turning to a different functional God. Let's think about the people who turn to who turn away from their old life because of social pressure. The people in your own life want you to stop doing what you are doing. They think it's bad. Eh, you maybe you even think it's bad, too. So to get them off your backs, you turn away from it. That's a turning. But if that's all you got, then that's a turn really to convenience and your own comfort. Some people stop living in one sin. This is the third thing here, why people turn away from their old life. Some people stop living in one sin because they'd rather give themselves to another sin. So just imagine this, right? Imagine if I give myself to, you know, uh, doing drugs every single day. And that has negative consequences on me getting a job and keeping a job. But what if all of a sudden I watch a music video and I really want to be rich and I recognize that those drugs keep me from being rich? I might turn away from that, but just to give myself to another sin. There's so many different reasons why people actually turn away from sin and to something else. But friends, just because one turns away from a so-called old life does not make one a Christian. Here, biblical repentance throughout the Bible is a turning away from sin and turning to Christ in faith. This is a basic fruit of the Spirit. And this applies to us as a church. This applies to us as a church. You know, church membership, the church membership of this church is to be made up of those who are genuinely born again. Genuinely born again. This is called regenerate church membership. That is, those who are members of the church have genuinely been born again or genuinely uh, are regenerated. There's been a new birth there. And it's those folks that we take into church membership. So true Christians have the spirit of Christ, which works in us by the word of God to grow us into the image of Christ, right? This is Jesus's church. He gives the church his spirit in order to make us look more like him. So if there's one here who's saying, yeah, I'm going to turn away from sin, but following Jesus, I don't particularly care. Like, it's so obvious, right? How exactly can you claim to have the spirit of Christ, but you don't care about the things of Christ or the holiness of Christ or the, the very loves of Jesus Christ? People who are born again, their lives are changed. They begin to look like Jesus Christ. Scripture calls this a dying to the old self, a putting on the new self in Jesus Christ. And so in membership interviews, as many of you guys know, the process is, you know, you go through membership class and then eventually you have a membership interview. And uh, it's not like a pass fail thing. It's just something where uh, me as a pastor, we can get to know, I can get to know you guys. And in the, the interview process, I'm going to ask you questions like, uh, so how has your life changed from before you became a Christian to after? 
And it's really fun and encouraging to hear what you guys are saying because you talk about how like before you heard the word but didn't really care about the word. And then after you became a Christian, you started reading the word of God. Your lives actually started changing. You you started putting off the old things, uh, saying no to those things and saying yes to the school of grace and being taught by Jesus Christ. And so there, that's not just human effort. That's the spirit of God working in you. And so we want to see, okay, do the people here who want to join the church, you know, is the spirit of God really working to bear spiritual fruit? Now, some people wonder, they say, hey, you know, isn't the church to be accepting of sinners and their sin? Isn't the church supposed to be accepting of sinners and their sin, like a warm embrace of sin? The answer is no. As one person wrote, the church is to be a safe place for sinners, but not a safe place for sin. It's like asking, does God really care about holiness or not? He so obviously cares about holiness, so much so that he says, look, you know what's going to help sinners when they're not repenting is to actually discipline them from the church. Is to actually publicly say something. So in other words, if I'm caught in, a, if, if I'm caught in adultery, for example, and I'm not repenting of my sin, not repenting of my sin, that's, that's the key here. We don't discipline sinners. We discipline sinners who aren't repenting. Uh, you guys, the church is supposed to take action there. It would be good to make a public statement like, okay, you know, this is what we have said to Jeremy according to the word of God that, you know, my marriage is to reflect Jesus's marriage to the church, right? And so as people watch my marriage, they're supposed to think, yes, God loves faithfulness. God loves holiness. God loves commitment. And, but Jeremy is saying, no, he doesn't really care about the things that God cares about. And so the church therefore is supposed to discipline those who refuse to repent of their sins and continue believing. And that's a good godly thing there. First Corinthians, it's very clear. First Corinthians five says that this discipline is not retributive. It's not getting back at the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, but it's restorative. Is that they may might really know that God takes things, his character, his love, his mercy, grace, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice seriously. And so should all of his people there. So do we want to be a place that is safe for sinners? Yes. But we don't ever want to be a place that makes sin comfortable to live amongst our people. You know, if you are, if you don't see fruit in your life, for whatever reason, let's say you're, you're prone to, you know, discouragement. Once again, you know, I prayed for that earlier. If you, if you uh, don't see fruit in your life, then the Apostle Paul's words uh, are doubly important, right? It's, he says there, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. That's something that all Christians should do. And let me encourage you, if you need help examining your life, that's what we all are here for. So as some people call it, one person has said that the church is a fruit inspection co-op. We're all supposed to be examining each other's fruit in a good and healthy way. And then we're also always supposed to be involved in each other's life, helping to fertilize the trees. And so we participate in this, hoping, praying that God would bear great spiritual fruit from our people. This is Mark number one. Repentance requires turning away from sin and to God in faith. And again, even for those who are discouraged or, you know, let's say you struggle with um, ungodly condemnation. You know, it's really good to ask other people to say, hey, can you help me look at the fruit in my life? Because sometimes we're so good at looking at all the bad things that we forget to look at all the wonderful things that God is doing. So let me encourage you to definitely reach out to others and say, I'm discouraged. Can you just can you just look at my life and tell me where examine my life and help me see the fruit in my life? 
So that's point number one there. Repentance requires turning away from sin and to God in faith. Mark number two, heart repentance requires confessing your sin against God before God. Heart repentance requires confessing your sin against God before God. This is in verses five and six. We learn this here. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. It's important to, to see what goes on here and know a little bit of the background. You have the, the drawing out of water from a well. Uh, and then you have the pouring of the water out before the Lord. And then you have the fasting. And then you have the confession. So those four things all really go together. The last thing that is the confession is sort of like the highlight. So you have the drawing out of water, number one. The pouring out of the water, number two. Number three, you have the fasting. And then number four, you have the confession. We have sinned against the Lord. Fasting was a way of denying oneself in order to depend more desperately on the sustainer, the Lord of life. And here that is what's going on in terms of the water. You have the drawing of the water, but they don't drink it themselves. They draw out the water of God to pour it back on the ground of God. And so they're abstaining from water. That is the very stuff necessary for life. In light of Israel's sins, right, this is a big deal. So keep in mind the storm God, you got a different God who's bringing water on the land. Think of fertility. You got the fertility God who's going to grow the crops. No, that's not what's going on here. They're not going to those gods, but instead they're going to the one true God who is the true source of life and fertility. So they're taking God's water, pouring it back on God's ground, which God will use to produce the crops all the while they are denying themselves. You got the self-denial and then you got the claiming of God. You are the Lord. Everything that's going on here, the drawing, the pouring, the fasting, the confessing, it reflects repentance, turning away from sin and to the Lord, acknowledging that everything is his. He alone is it. It's interesting here, this fasting it plays a big part, right? This self-denial. I don't know if you guys regularly fast. The times that I have fasted have been fantastic in terms of not just self-denial, but self-denial, but then going to the Lord, so there have been times in my life where, you know, I might take four hours to uh, walk and pray. And during that time, I'm not eating breakfast, for example. Uh, and sometimes I've been shorter than that. But, uh, you know, it's just time set aside to uh, meditate on the word of God while denying myself of something. Um, that can be a wonderful time where you are seeking the Lord. Uh, I certainly could benefit from doing this a lot more. But here it's obvious, you know, you want to deny yourself. You are not God. You are not autonomous, but yet you depend on the one who is the Lord. It's a confession, though, that brings it all together there. He says, we have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. Heart repentance, once again, requires confessing our sin against God and before God. Israel's confession here is a great sign. So if we're looking at their piety, uh, this is a great sign because they are concerned with their sin against God. According to the Bible, sin is first and foremost against God. God is the one who design, designed people to display his glory to the world. Right? He's overall, it's his righteousness that we're supposed to display, his goodness, his care, his love, his mercy, his justice, 
his righteousness. So when we do things against others or against ourselves or against him, we sin first and foremost against this God. This is why King David, after committing adultery, confesses against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's Psalm 51 verse 4. What does he mean there? Does he mean that he did not sin against Uriah? Because David had him killed so they could have his wife. Did he not sin against Bathsheba, whom they committed adultery? Uh, the, he committed adultery with her. Um, it does not mean that he did not sin against them. When it says you only have I sinned against this, you only is not intended to exclude other people, but it's a term of significance. He's laying the significance against the one, the true one whom he has sinned against. You know that uh, I'm sure you know this from your own experience, but it's man's temptation to think that our sin is primarily against others and against ourselves as man's temptation, not so much God evidence of this. You can just look at your own life is do you spend time confessing before God? Do you spend time confessing before God? I think actually that we probably spend little time confessing our sins before God. I mean, if you think about people, don't we spend lots of time trying to desperately make things right with others when we've sinned against them? Seeking reconciliation with others, but yet we spend so little time on our knees saying, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. My sin is against you. You only have I sinned, according to Psalm 51, verse 3. And then sometimes, just think about our reconciliation with others here. Sometimes we go on to ask the person we've sinned against to help us. You know, I don't ever want to sin against you again. Help me examine my heart. Help me change my ways. But we spend no time asking God, according to Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. We're so used to living before the eyes of man that our confession rarely goes beyond man against you and you only have I sinned though, David, godly man says. So let me encourage you, practical application, let me encourage you to, to do this. Review the day. Review the day and find ways in which your FOMO, your fear of missing out, your lust, your desires, your lack of faith has led you to abandon your first love, the one who loved us. And confess your sin. So before you close your eyes, before you go to bed there, review the ways in which you have fallen short of God's righteousness, the ways in which you have rejected his lordship over you, the ways in which you have set up other gods before, beside him and stripped him of his glory. In terms of prayers, uh, you know, I get together regularly with Jay, Figueroa, Caesar, and Oscar. Uh, and when Jay leads us in prayers, uh, he regularly prays in public, even before meals, Lord, forgive us for our sins. And let me tell you, friends, that is so refreshing to my soul when I am remembered that I ought to regularly confess my sins and ask God to forgive us our sins. Because we sin all throughout the day, even in ways in which we don't even realize. And when Jay prays like that, he reminds me that I need to review my own self. I need to review the ways in which I uh, sin against God and go to God for forgiveness. A great reminder. So review the day and then confess your sins. You know, these confessions, by the way, should not just be of the tongue. These confessions should not just be of the tongue or of the lips. 
It's the out of the overflow of the heart that the tongue will speak. The tongue actually follows the heart. It should follow the heart. Confession should spring from sorrow. Confession should spring from sorrow. I think we see evidence of the people's sorrow there in the drawing out of the water, the pouring out, definitely the fasting, definitely the confessing here. But genuine heart repentance should produce genuine sorrow for sinning against God. A sorrow where when you grieve the spirit, your spirit is then broken, leading to a broken and contrite heart. Not all sorrow over sin, though, is of a broken spirit. Not all sorrow over sin is because of a broken spirit. You could think of a sorrow of discomfort. Our sins have given birth to certain inconveniences in our life, life's difficulties, relational problems. We live an unfulfilled life. Right, this was Pharaoh's problem, wasn't it? This was Pharaoh's sorrow. Remember his lamenting after the plagues there? It was not because he was sorrowful over his flagrant sin against God. It was sorrow because there were too many flies and frogs. And so he laments after these things. Yet his heart is so hardened against God that he goes out and wants to destroy and kill God's people. He refuses to listen to God. But yet, if you're just to look at his life at certain points in time and see that sorrow, see that lamenting, even the cries, you might be tempted to think that that is genuine. But frankly, friends, it was not. He cared more for how his sin affected his own personal life and his nation, his own rule, than for how his sin affected his relationship with the creator, the one to whom he was responsible to, accountable to. For lovers of God, sorrow and repentance and confession, they intertwine with one another. And in fact, sorrow vents itself in godly confession, as Thomas Watson put it. An illustration, I think, uh, displays this. If you have children or even if you babysat children, things like this, you know, I think uh, you see this idea in children with sensitive consciences that sorrow vents itself in confession. You know, some little children, if they know that they have sinned, right, if they are so aware that they are guilty, it is with just one little stare from the parent that they then burst into tears, right? Their heart leaks all over. Uh, it leaks their guilt and their shame, but that is not all that their heart leaks. Their heart will also leak, right? If they're trusting in their parent, their hearts will also leak trust and love. And that's what these children do. Just imagine it in their minds, right? They, 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 right? They, they've gotten caught. They know that they are guilty. They all of a sudden are struck with shame. Their hearts are leaking, right? Because they're pausing. But then they move towards their parents in sorrowful tears in confession and openness, right? In, in trust, they burst into tears. And what do they do? They don't run away in tears. So these children with a sense of guilt, they move towards their parents, wanting their parents to make things right. It's the most beautiful scene that you could see. In terms of confession, these little children with sensitive consciousness. And this is to remind us, supposed to point us towards the way our relationship is to work with the Father. When we are, when we are caught in that guilt and in that shame, we are supposed to move towards God in confession and openness, trusting that even in tears and in sorrow that God will make things right. Now, in relation to tears, if you're wondering, like, okay, how do I determine my own sorrow? I'm not really one to cry. The point is not the tears. Right? Different people will evidence sorrow in different ways. But it is, 
first and foremost, a sorrow of the heart. If you know what it feels like, the sting to wrong another person, yet you don't feel that with God, then I think something so you need to grow in your relationship in terms of knowing this personal father, this father that wants to make things right with you. And you can do that by understanding more about who this father is according to the word of God. That's number two there. First mark, turn away from sin and to God. Second mark, confess sin against God and before God. Third mark of heart repentance is that it trusts God to save you from your sin. Third mark of heart repentance, it trusts God to save you from your sin. This is in verses 7 to 11. Here in these verses, God saves the Israelites from their sin in really two different ways. The first is that he saves them by, uh, by undoing the effects of their sin. So remember, Israel got themselves into the mess. The Philistines had defeated them. God, in the passage that I'm going to read, God uh, undoes that, right? He saves them from the Philistines, and then he brings the ark back to Israel. So he's undoing the effects of their sin. The second way he saves them is by granting pardon from their sin. And this is the primary way that he saves them from their sin, is by granting them pardon from their sin. And these two ways of deliverance are really wrapped up in this battle story here in verses 7 to 11. Look there at verse 7 to 8. Let's read those verses. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. Now, verse eight is evidencing right there their their repentance. They're asking Samuel to cry out to the Lord for them. In chapter four. Right. They were defeated. They wanted to use God for their own benefit by bringing the ark into battle, thinking like, hey, you know what? We're just going to go ahead and cart this thing around. Then God, therefore, is going to going to fight for us, even though we don't really care about him. And so they decided to bring the ark into battle. That's in chapter four. But here they don't presume anything. But instead, they turn to God, independence and humility, crying out to crying out to their leader. Continue. Cry out, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. And then verses 9 to 11 are interesting because of what we find there in the battle account. You see here, this is rising up to the climax, but in the middle of it, you see this is spotted with, not really spotted, but really laid down with strong foundations of worship. Look there, verse nine. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. Isn't that weird? You got this worship, right? And then you have this battle account going on here. Well, I think it just goes to show that it's the Lord who is going to deliver his people. And the Lord delivers his people, at least in the Old Testament sense, when it's referring to Israel through defeating their enemies. But most importantly, the climax here is really the offering up of the burnt offering. The burnt offering is is the true climax of the people's repentance. You have the putting away of idols. You have the turning to serve God. You have the penitence. You have the confession. You have them pleading with their prophet to intercede for him. And then you have the burnt offering for their guilt. 
And as the offering is offered up for their sin, God delivers them from their enemies. In relation to this sacrificing stuff, uh, Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so what's the purpose then of these sacrifices? It was for the Israelites to evidence their faith. That's the true evidence of faith. It is, it is works. It is following God's commands. Are they going to follow God's commands or not? Are they truly going to believe on my goodness and my deliverance or not? And we know from the previous chapter that it was the priests who didn't care give a rip about sacrifices and offerings. It says there that they scorned them. But here you see the repentance, don't you? Samuel leads all of Israel. and Israel's crying out to Samuel, their leader, the priest of the people, the prophet of the people cherishing god's sacrifice and you hear her you see here all of israel doing what the previous priests scorned do you see god's mercy here it should be encouraging to all of us if you're a christian here that turning is possible you see that god is such a gracious god here even in this account here god uses his rulership for them he delivers them. He rules over the Philistines. He shows his power. He brings back the ark. Not only that, though, but you see that God reveals himself. These are the categories of the ark. You have his rulership. He rules over the people. And then God reveals himself. He, he in his grace, sends the people, Samuel, who speaks the words of God. He intercedes on behalf of the people as a priest, issuing a clear call to put away the gods and to worship the true and living God. And God also here in this account provides reconciliation. He gives them a priest in Samuel who then offers up a burnt offering for their sin, evidencing their faith. You see how this points to uh, how this applies to us today and how this points us to Jesus Christ. The authors of scripture are intent to draw, pick up the parallels between Samuel and Christ. We looked at before that Christ grew in stature with man. And then you see there the gospel of Luke picking up the same thing. Christ grew in stature and wisdom before man. Samuel here, friends, points us to Jesus Christ. When it comes to the word of God, Samuel is the one who speaks the words of God to the people as a prophet. Christ not only speaks the word of God, he is the word of God. And his call, according to Mark 1, is to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. When it comes to Samuel being a priest, right? Samuel prays on behalf of all the people. He offers up a sacrifice for them. Well, Christ serves as a priest for his people, going on behalf of all who would ever repent and believe, repenting that is turning from their sins and believing on Jesus. He goes before the Father, not with the blood of animals, but by his own shed blood. And just as the Israelites call out to Samuel, so we as Christians look to the Son of God and plead with him, save us from our sin. It's fantastic to read this account because even in the giving of Samuel, as Samuel preaches the word of God, as Samuel offers up a sacrifice, as he leads the people, we are pointed to Jesus Christ. True repentance, friends, turns to Jesus Christ and calls on him to save us from our sins. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, this is Christ's call to you. Many people, you know, when it comes to confession and thinking about how they've sinned, uh, many people feel like they don't want to get caught. Even thinking about confession is like, oh, I don't, I don't want to get caught. I don't want to acknowledge certain things. But friends, God already knows that we have lived for our own glory and not his. God already knows that we have gotten ourselves into quite a mess 
God already knows that we need great deliverance. And all this is why God sent his son to die on the cross for sins. This is what motivated all those particular things. Our rebellion, our living for our own glory, our idolatry of ourselves, our rejection of God, our determination to live according to our own rule and not his is what motivated his grand plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. He reaches out in his mercy and his grace and sends us a prophet, priest and king to die on the cross for our sins, making atonement for our sins. And so in his great love and his mercy, he sends his son to live a perfect life. Where we should have lived a perfect life, he lives it for us. And then where we should have died the death that we deserve, Christ dies for us. He bears the wrath that we ourselves deserved. And in Jesus Christ, he helps us see our need, doesn't he? Because Jesus Christ, he comes and says, repent of your sins and believe. This is why in God's kindness, God helps us see our need. When the Israelites were relying on their own plans, trusting in their own power and, the thi- and other things other than God, God was busy, wasn't he? Placing them in situations in which all of Israel's secondary supports were taken from them. All the things that they had trusted in, God removes from them. He removes their power. He removes even the ark. He removes their strength. And why does he do this? He removes them one by one, as one author says, in order that they might learn to lean on his mercy alone. And at the right time, in comes the word of God, calling people to turn to the Lord. So friend, if you are worried If you are worried about getting caught, friends, that's your guilty conscience. God is helping you bring about a good sorrow for the things that you have done. Now, that could be God removing from you all of your gimmicks, all of your tricks that you got going on that might have been working for you for so long. And now you are hearing the word of God and God is calling you, friends, to repent of your sin and believe on him and you will be saved. This is not something that you should fear. There is freedom in turning away from sin and towards Jesus Christ. Because in turning to Christ, we therefore find salvation. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. We don't need to be fearful here of acknowledging our sin, but we need to be eager Eager, looking forward to this justification, this declaration of righteousness that only God can give you, that probably your conscience, even right now, tells you you need. Friends, do not be fearful in looking at your own sin. No one can tell you something that God does not already know about uh, yourself. God's not going to, I mean, you cannot expose enough of yourself. God already knows everything. So don't let the court of man deter you from owning up to your own sins because, friends, God is good and he justifies. He declares righteous everybody who comes to him, acknowledging their sin and claiming the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In so doing, he helps us. This is the point, really, of verses 12 to the end. Look there. Samuel here, he takes up a stone. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. 
Here, Ebenezer means stone of help. And we sing this in a song called Come Thou Fount. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of help. He builds this monument so that it would, ever, it would always remember them that God is their rock of help. And he says, us, ours. It's an amazing statement for so many different reasons. God is our stone of help. Up till now, he says, till now. Their covenant God had helped them. How did he help them? We can go all the way back to Abraham. We think then about Israel and Egypt and how God delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. We can go to Israel going into the land of Canaan, the land of promise that God had given them. But even in these most recent events and them losing the ark, God had helped them. How did God help them? He did so by puring his people of evil leaders who didn't care about God. He did so as the ark toured around the land of the Philistines. As we saw last week, God faithfully accomplishes his purposes, even though his people were not. He displays his glory to the world. That's how he helped them. And they got to be witnesses of these things. But where we land today is on the fact that God help also comes as he pierces hearts, as he brings conviction, as he brings about repentance and sorrow. In all the ways they saw their sin and the consequences of their sin, it was to bring about a repentance of heart. It was God working to bring them safely back to himself. So if you're a Christian, friends, you too do not need to be scared when it comes to repentance. In fact, you should be confident to own your sin. When you stare at the darkness of your own heart, you can trust, friends, in the light of Christ because the light of Christ has power to shine into it to bring healing and restoration. And you therefore can look at the cross and know God that despite your sin, he has in fact declared you righteous in his sight. You know if God has already declared you righteous in his sight. So why wouldn't he affirm, want to affirm you of his own declaration, of his own love in your confession of sin? Friends, I hope you are excited here. The opportunity to, to, to be free from shame and guilt and everything that hinders your, your relationship with the Lord and turn towards the Father who welcomes sinners with open arms. That is a glorious thing. So let me ask you, friends, do you know that kind of welcome? Maybe you yourself have given that welcome to other people who have sinned against you. But friends, do you know what that welcome looks like for yourself? It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to anticipate. What does it look like for my Father to welcome me despite my sins to welcome me yet again back into his arms of love with his tender face looking at me, restoring me, reminding me of my declaration that I am righteous, a sinner and just at the same time to experience once again all of the benefits that come with being in his family, delighting in his love, his grace, his mercy and his help delighting even in the gentle discipline as god is so committed to see his children fly in their faith that's what we have to look forward to friend the perfect love of the father to help thank god that there are no partitions in his universe no partitions in his reign even the even striking our hearts and bringing us to sorrow and repentance god there is exhibiting his reign bringing us back to his reign of grace in conclusion, what are the marks of true repentance here? Number one, that we turn away from sin and to God. Number two, that we confess our sin against God. We do that before God. And number three, trusting God to save you from your sin. 
Our passage provides us with a wonderful counter, a wonderful answer to the people's sin and the events that happened in chapter 4. In chapter 4, it is Israel who is defeated by the Philistines. Here in chapter 7, though, it is the Philistines who are defeated by Israel. In chapter 4, verse 3, Israel is the one who puts their trust in the ark instead of God, instead of the God of the ark. Before they say, let it save us. But here, after the people are moved to repentance, what do they do in 7, 8? They call out to God to save them. And then in another parallel, in chapter 4 and 7, both end with an important naming. In chapter 4, 21, the chapter closes with a woman naming her priestly child Ichabod, meaning the glory of God has departed. And there's judgment on the whole entire time period. But here in chapter 7, we have much more of positive ending. Appropriately, it isn't about Israel, but about God himself. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. God, by his grace, was bringing his people to repentance. He was saving them from their sin. And that's our major takeaway here today as we are to look to Jesus Christ, even as we see Samuel call them to repent and believe. God is not going to deliver us from any physical battle necessarily. He hasn't revealed that to us. But he has, in fact, promised to deliver us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all who turn from their sins and believe. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that even faith and repentance are gifts of grace. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would learn to lay hold of these gifts and utilize these means to know you more. Father, we pray that whether we are Christians or not, that we would not be fearful of confessing our sin and owning them. But Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of the fact that uh, those who confess their sins, Lord, you forgive we thank you that you are that kind of father who invites rebellious people to come back to you. We thank you that you are that kind of king who calls rebellious sinners to lay down their arms, their weapons of warfare, and to come and experience the glorious life in your kingdom underneath your law, according to your reign. Father, we pray that we as First Baptists would be a repenting people. And that once again, we would not be fearful of this, but that we would lay hold of your grace even as we confess our sins again and again. We pray, Lord, that you would help us see your tender face in our discouragement when we're tempted to give way to ungodly condemnation. We pray, Lord, that we would know that you are our God of help. In your name we pray. Amen.